Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Hello there, travelers of the internet. So you could travel anywhere on the internet. I suppose you can. You can travel anywhere your little mind takes you. Today I'm going to share some thoughts on recovery with you. This is a topic that one of my listeners thought I might go over, that my audience might benefit from. I'm hoping we won't have any technical difficulties today. We did during the last solo pod, and Jenna used some expletives when she was editing, and we had to chop some stuff out. So I think I got it all ironed out. We'll see what happens. We'll see what the technology gods offer, how much guidance they give us. I'm going to frame the discussion on recovery around Paul Check's six foundational principles. If you've been listening to my pod for a while, you'll know what these are. If you haven't, I'm going to ask you to guess. And if you have, I'm going to suggest that you recite them right now. I'm going to give you a pop quiz. What are Paul Check's six foundational principles? These are really essential to leading a healthy life and following your dream goal or objective. And now I'm going to answer the quiz and pretend that you got it right because that's how I roll. So we have sleeping, breathing, eating, thinking, drinking, and moving. Sounds pretty basic, correct? And it's a perfect framework to discuss the essence of recovery. That is to say, the things I think athletes will benefit from focusing on when they are trying to maximize recovery from hard training, whether that training is through strength and conditioning methods or cross-country skiing or running up a mountain or riding your bike a lot or racing a stage race, etc. So let's get to it. The first one on our list is sleeping, and sleeping is like nacho or really like ramsis. Sleeping is number one. What do I mean by that? I mean, it's the most important recovery modality. There are lots of things we can do to facilitate recovery of our muscles. We can get massage. We can jump on a cryo tube. We can use Normatex. We can use compression. We can do ice baths. We can hang upside down on an inversion table. We can use a pulsed electromagnetic field device. We can use a muscle stimulating device like a TENS machine and all the various contraptions all the bits, but sleep will trump all of these. The reason is simply that your body has a natural rhythm and cycle. And I've talked many times about the rhythm of nature. And since you are a body in nature, you are subject to these laws. And that means sleep is your best bet. When you go out and do all the things, ride all the bikes, pedal all the, all the watts, the best way to counteract this is to rest and let your body reset. Reset the hormonal cycle. In particular, cortisol is one that gets pretty revved up from training. And ideally, cortisol rises and sets with the sun, meaning it gets up in the morning and peaks, peaks, peaks. And then as the day goes on, it kind of slows down. You can disrupt this by afternoon or evening training. You can disrupt this by having a coffee after 3 p.m. Remember, the half-life of caffeine is about six hours. So if you have... 100 milligrams of caffeine at 4 p.m. at 10 o'clock at night, you still have 50 milligrams in your system. And hopefully not a lot of you are thinking, well, I have two or three coffees a day or maybe more. And so I'm really desensitized to it. So it doesn't matter. And this argument doesn't really hold any weight. You're still having an impact from that habit. The caffeine is still impacting your system negatively. It's just that you're feeling the effects less over time. There's some aspects of health that will talk more loudly, namely the pain teacher. The more you neglect a knee injury, for example, to pick an easy example, the louder the pain teacher will talk to you. And the pain teacher is here to teach you a lesson. But there are other aspects of biology that curiously tend to become more quiet over time. But just like the saying, emotions buried alive never die. Well, bad health choices never just fade away into the ether. 
you can choose to gorge on chocolate chip cookies and fried potatoes and hamburgers, fast food, junk food, all you want and think that you're fine, but there will be a consequence. There is an additive effect to these choices. I'm here to tell you. So sleep is how we reset the clock and rebalance the hormones. And it's when all the brain repair occurs and all most of the muscle repair occurs. You must protect your sleep. And on weeks or days when you are completely hosed from your training efforts, totally flogged, and you're really feeling as though you need an extra boost, the simplest solution is to simply go to bed earlier. Try to get in bed a half an hour earlier, an hour earlier. And even if you don't fall asleep right away, the, the act of getting in bed will help to facilitate better sleep throughout that evening. Also, on the topic of defending sleep hygiene, I recommend being aggressive about minimizing blue light, especially after the sun goes down. There's a little bit of conflicting science on this, but as far as I've seen, most of it supports that blasting your eyeballs, your retinas with a bunch of blue light will cause problems and potentially disrupt melatonin cycles and sleep cycles. And if you're looking at a computer, especially the more high definition and the more fancy pants it is, as far as the display, the more blue light it has. Apple and everybody else who makes displays seems to think that everyone wants the blackest blacks and the sharpest definition and the coolest colors for all their Avengers Infinity War movies. And of course, we all like to be entertained from time to time. I watch Thanos just as most other people have, but when we see this super high def, extremely stimulating action movies, these types of films, and the blue light spectrum is amplified, it can cause you big problems. If you want to learn more about this, you can check out Paul's podcast with Matt Maruka. We'll put a link to this in the show notes. This is M-A-R-U-K-A. And Matt is the founder of Raw Optics. And he's pretty much a complete science dork on this topic of light, all things light, including blue light and how it impacts your circadian rhythms and how full spectrum light is healthier for your eyes for a whole variety of reasons. So if you're interested in that topic, I recommend diving deep on it. But this is one of the critical things that we can do to help ensure a better night's sleep. I will also add that Watching stimulating TV, even if you get clever and add your blue blocking glasses on or you're using a filter on your laptop, still has an impact on sleep. You know, it's easy to assume that we can just turn off our action film and then roll over and pass out. And some of you may argue that that is the case. But when that is the case, most of the time it's because you're so smoked from being running the engine hot all the time that you crash and it's not a fully rejuvenative sleep. It is more of an emergency band-aid sleep. And when you get to the point where you can feel the difference, you'll know exactly what I mean. So by protecting the input that comes into your, your ocular vision, that didn't make any sense. All vision is ocular. When you <clears throat> protect the stimulus that comes into your brain in the evening, meaning you guard yourself against stuff that is too crazy, too violent, too much action, too stressful, too many people getting flung off of cliffs or jumping out of cars or whatever, you name it. Then you increase the likelihood of a good rest cycle. So the week of your peak event and the week or two before, if you are lifting training to get that ultimate stimulus and that super compensation, these are times to really be conscious of not just the stimulus on your bike, but the stimulus off the bike. Watching Game of Thrones, binging on Game of Thrones, the week of your peak race will probably set you up for a little bit of a blunted cortisol response the day of your race. What you want is a strong heart rate variability. You want a good response. You want your system, your nervous system, and your hormones to be primed and ready. And every time you listen to super obnoxious, intense music, like 
really deep, angry rap or super gnarly heavy metal or industrial or whatever you're into, or even really jarring house or techno music or dubstep, these types of beats will really impact your your brainwaves and your system and can kind of run you down. I figured this out when I was a junior even, and I used to have quite an affinity for 80s hard industrial rock. We're talking Nine Inch Nails, Ministry, Palehead, Lard. Be curious to see how many of you know these groups. I mean, everybody knows who Nine Inch Nails is, but... And listening to that stuff, or here's one that no one's hold, heard of, I guarantee it. If anyone's heard of this, send me a note. Lead into gold. Who knows this group? Most obtuse, random stuff ever. Nitzer Ebb. This is like literally banging your head against a pail and shouting type of stuff. And I found it very rhythmic, so it, I identified with it and helped me ride my bike. But when you played that stuff too long, it really drove you into a hole. It was like running a Dremel tool on the side of your head. Actually, the ultimate example of that is a group called the Revolting Cox. These guys made, it was like the predecessor to house music, but it was like house and industrial had a baby, but a dark baby. It was a dark spawn. Drinking some tea tonight. What are we having? We're having uh, Tulsi honey and chamomile. Recording this in the evening. So... That was a totally random tangent on the pale head and ministry. But the point I'm trying to get at is you need to protect your sleep. Also, in case you don't know, probably many of my audience, my audience members will know this already, but you don't want little LEDs in your room. You want your room to be as dark as possible. It should be like a safe, dark cave. It should be a little bit cool and preferably quiet. White noise is fine if that works for you. Sleep is the most important. These are all important recovery modalities and important things to consider in your recovery process. But man, sleep is key. And the other thing I'll say is the week of your peak event and the week of your largest training block, or maybe it's not a week, maybe it's a 10-day block or a three-day block, whatever it is, these are both excellent times to pile on the sleep as much as possible. The last week before your season-long goal is the week to sneak in a nap when you can. Go to bed earlier when you can. Not set an alarm if you can. I mean, it's COVID, so we can all not set alarms, right? In theory. I know that's not true, but many people's work schedules have become disrupted and we work from home and we can, you know, do our Vimeo calls with the tie on on the top and our underwear on the bottom. But so that that allows some flexibility in sleep schedule. And, and many people are not commuting to work and I have some athletes who have personally benefited from this when you're not spending... 30, 60 minutes in the car each way to work. The smartest way to spend that extra time or to utilize that extra time, I'll say, is sleeping. Because how can you ever have time if you do not take time? The second one is breathing. This is a foundational principle in Paul's model of how one comes to express their dream goal or objective. And what he's saying is, if you're breathing incorrectly, you won't reach your potential. Now, if you haven't checked it out, there are some really good breathing resources you can venture into. I have previously listed a free seven-day Soma breath course, which is a really excellent portal into exploring breath work if you would like to check it out. I'll put the link into this pod as well. And for someone who's never done any breath work or just wants to review basics, it's really outstanding. The teacher Naraj does its breath work, but not in a necessarily in a Wim Hof style. It's breathing in beats. So you breathe, inhale and exhale on beats. And this coordinates the breath and the heart rate ultimately with the rhythm of the music. And it's very structured and purposeful and it's designed to bring about certain states and by controlling the length of your inhale and exhale you can have a direct impact on your nervous system and this is why breath is so powerful in regulating recovery because if you do a really hard workout and then you 
roll in the driveway and decide to mow the lawn and take out the trash and scoop the kid a litter and do your taxes and do the dishes and get on three phone calls and put out some work emails, email fires and asteroids. And then you're chasing the kids around the yard and then you're fixing the broken fence and da 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 for the rest of your Saturday and you're go, go, go. Your system is in, it, it's a continuation effectively of that workload on the bike, but not any constructive way. So there's a time and a place to work out and push the body and make that yang energy focus on the doing, the dividing, the conquering, and then there's a time to begin rejuvenation. And by working with breath and understanding breath and witnessing our own breath patterns, we can have greater control over our own response to stress and also recognize when our stress train is running down the tracks way too fast and we need to slow it down and eventually bring it to a stop. The real nuts and bolts are make your exhale longer than your inhale and you will upregulate parasympathetic nervous activity. Remember, to use our colloquial definitions, sympathetic is fight or flight and parasympathetic is rest or digest. So a great time to use this is when you're feeling anxious three hours before your start time. Or maybe when you arrive at the start of a race and you're like, man, I feel unprepared or you've got negative thoughts running through your head or you see the competition and their legs look super ripped or they've got the new amazing race wheels or whatever. So you can use breath to as a window into the sympathetic or parasympathetic nervous system. So just to outline this briefly, you know, we have lots of nervous system activities that happen all day long and most of them happen without conscious thought or control. Your heart beats, you breathe, your blood courses through your veins, your blood vessels and arteries contract or expand based on different things that are happening, right? This is why when you ride after about 10 minutes, most of the time you tighten down your shoes a little bit because the blood flow changes your body and starts to go more towards your muscles and your feet get a little bit smaller until it's a hot summer day and then they get a little bit bigger, etc. All these things are happening all the time. Your pupils dilate. Most of us don't have conscious control over the size of our pupils. You can influence it by looking at a light or looking at a dark thing, but we can't consciously make our pupils get bigger or smaller. This is one small example of things that we probably cannot control that our body regulates on its own. Well, breath is a window into that world. So when you're feeling anxious or out of control or stressed about something, when you use breath, if you utilize breath as a tool, you can begin to have some direction or some influence on that response. And over time, with enough practice, you can even learn to control or direct, I'll say, that response. <clears throat> what do I mean by that? Well, it's pretty simple. Longer exhale than inhale. That's the most important part. But a really simple protocol would be six breaths, six seconds in, eight seconds out. And you don't have to look at a watch to count. You can just count in your head. So when you're feeling stressed out, try this. And maybe it doesn't work for you. Maybe these breaths are too long. So reduce the intervals. Start with two seconds in, four seconds out. Then maybe work to four, six, or four, eight. And then work to a longer exhale. And if you notice your breathing pattern throughout the day. If you check in with yourself, give yourself a pop quiz while you're standing in line at the supermarket or waiting at a stoplight in the middle of answering an email in the middle of making dinner and check in with your breath rate. Are you breathing very shallow? Are you taking little quick breaths in your chest? Like, <laughs> or are you breathing diaphragmatically when you inhale? your diaphragm should contract and push your, push your viscera out, giving you that nice, healthy Buddha belly. And I've talked about this in other episodes as well, but if when you inhale, your belly does not expand, you have a reversed 
or inverted breathing pattern or a chest breathing pattern. We can call it a few different things. And I'm not here to prescribe or diagnose on a podcast when I've never met you before, or maybe I've met you, but not seen you, etc. But you get the point. You can start to dig into this. Some really great resources. There's a book called Breathe by Blissa Vranich. There is also a book by Patrick McGowan called The Oxygen Advantage. These are both excellent starting points to get into breath work and understand the ramifications of breath, proper breathing technique, etc. So breathing is a critical part of recovery. And the reason it's a critical part of recovery is because if you do a super hard workout and then your breath rate is increased for hours and hours afterwards, especially when you add in the demands of regular life, then the sympathetic train keeps on going. So breath work can help slow and stop that train. One last technique I'll mention is box breathing. Box breathing is like our six, eight count breathing. That's six seconds inhale and eight second exhale, but you breathe in a box. So you might start with inhaling for a count of four, holding at the top of the breath for a count of four, exhaling for a count of four, and then holding at the bottom of the breath for a count of four and repeat. So you can see you're making a box. If you want to see how good you are at breathing, go for a slow walk sometime with your dog or by yourself and try some box breathing. This is a really effective recovery modality. And it's active, but it's not really yang. It's not doing, it's actually more regenerative. One caveat with box breathing is I found that when people get to be too structured about it and they try to push the envelope and go to 8888 or whatever, you can turn the corner and actually turn it into a yang to-do list activity. That's not the objective. The objective of all recovery activities is really to maximize yin energy. Remember, just as a review, yin is multiplying. Yin is rejuvenative. So fundamentally, recovery is about pushing on the yin lever and letting go of the yang lever. The yang lever is intervals. It's kilometers. It is watts per kilo. It is doing, dividing, conquering, achieving man stuff to assign a gender to it. Yin is definitely more feminine. Yang is definitely more masculine. And just to throw a totally random tangent in there if you conceive of god as a man think about what i just said and understand why that makes no sense because if god birthed a universe how could god be a man meditate on that okay there's me trying to be deep for the night time for some more tea <clears throat> The next one is eating. Eating, of course, plays an important role in our recovery from hard training or hard races. And Alan Lim taught me this years ago. He basically said, I went to him and was confused because, you know, in the last 30 years, we've seen the demonization of various different macronutrients. And who doesn't want to demonize a macronutrient? I do. I mean, those damn things, they just piss me off. What am I talking about? I'm talking about how in the 80s, fat was evil. And that's because we had a fourth grade mentality about it. If you ate fat, you got fat. And of course, that is ridiculous nonsense. It's oversimplification by a factor of a million. To speak in hyperbole, and it's really not a constructive way to look at any macronutrient then in the 90s, it was protein, especially red meat. Red meat was the devil because when you ate steak, you got a heart attack. I mean, how brainwashed have we been to believe that statistic? And wow, is there a pile of science on the other side of that discussion? Holy crap. I'm not even going to broach that topic on this podcast. I never like that expression, broach that topic. I'm not even sure I'm saying that right. 
What kind of colloquialism is that? I'll look it up later. Anyway, I'm not going to address that topic. Why would I? I'm not wearing a brooch. What am I, grandma? No, not yet. But I'm not going to approach the topic of how red meat does or does not give you heart disease. I will say this. It is one of the most subvertly dogmatic topics you can approach in the world of diet and nutrition. You know, the overt ones are, well, vaccines and race. Those are hot topics right now. But you want to get someone really fired up, go find someone who's been a doctor for about 30 years and walk up to them and tell them that red meat does not cause a heart attack and watch what happens. Anyway, so that was the 90s. Now, what's, what's the evil at the moment? Well, carbs. Carbs are just evil. I mean, let's get real, people. It's just like that scene in Step Brothers with the evil brother Brennan. I haven't had a carb since 2009. Now, carbohydrates are potentially complicating to some aspects of health when you eat large quantities of sugary carbohydrates off the bike, or I should say carbohydrates that will raise blood sugar quickly, you can have an insulin response. And when you repeat that cycle over and over again, the common cause can be weight gain and or adult onset diabetes if you really take it to an extreme perspective. And that's clearly not where we want people to end up. But I think demonization of any macronutrient is looking at things from, I'll say, a playground. And it's really asking the wrong question. The question isn't how many grams of carbs, protein, or fat should I eat? This is far too general. And it's just not phrasing things from the right lens. I prefer to look at eating in terms of first defining it by your metabolic type. And if you want to check out the metabolic typing diet, I'll put a list link to that in the show notes. It's a simple quiz you can take. And it will give you a starting point from whence to proceed. And this is really just a platform for you to begin to really become in tune and finally attentive to your body's needs and what your body tells you. If you're plowing through life, ignoring singles all over the place, you're going to have a hard time understanding what your body needs and doesn't. But if you listen and pay attention, it will tell you. It's just that in our Western culture right now, many people tend to disassociate from those pains. And I'll throw most Western doctors under the bus for a moment broadly while I'm at it and just say that as a general concept, most Western allopathic treatments tend to teach us to disassociate from our bodies, not integrate and become more attuned to our bodies. That was a little bit of a non-congruent sentence, but I'm sure you understood exactly what I meant. So for me, you know, I said this in the past, exercise is about connection with nature and connection with self. And I'm always seeking to look inward and see what's happening in my own body to have sensation, to have accurate truth, to illuminate the truth within myself. Did I annihilate myself in that workout and go way too deep? Or was it just the right load? Or was it not enough load? Did I eat something that did not agree with me? I'd like to know about it. I don't want to camouflage it with Tums or some other random creation that will band-aid over my symptoms because I don't like the way I feel. For me, feeling is always the authentic choice. Even if those feelings are uncomfortable or sucky or make me grumpy, then I just have to process that and accept the choices that I made. If I eat the crappy food, I want to know about it. Camouflaging that food with all kinds of drugs or digestive aids it's only going to complicate things later. It's not like that just makes it go away. So I think I just went on the world's longest tangent, but Alan Lim taught me years ago to pad my hard training with carbohydrates. Pretty simple philosophy. And this is really basic logic, but it makes perfect sense. You should eat some carbohydrates before your really hard rides because you've got to make sure your glycogen tank is relatively fueled. And no matter what anyone is brainwashing you with about keto, 
if you are a bike racer and you're doing anything other than the world's longest bike race, and I'm talking like a thousand kilometer bike races and longer, anything other than that, you need carbohydrates. Anytime you are above functional threshold power, you burn exclusively carbs. This is just science. So anyone who's telling you you can go win a really hard road race on eating avocados and sardines is not selling you the whole picture. Everyone needs carbohydrates. It's not a tough guy situation. Some people need more than others depending on their fiber type, but everyone needs them. So Alan's advice is pad your training, a hard training with carbohydrates. Have some carbs before your training. That means if you're doing a massive ride and you're not going to eat that much in the morning or a really long race and you know you won't be able to eat much in the morning, your dinner the night before should have a healthy portion of carbohydrates. Now, whether or not those carbs are glutinous or not, that's up to you. If you've got Italian bloodlines and you're used to eating a lot of gluten and you have no inflammation, then maybe it's okay. But if you are anyone else in the universe, go see my podcast with Trevor Connor about all the things that gluten does to you for a deep dive on that topic, including a lot of nerdy science. Thank you, Trevor. So you should also have carbohydrates during your hard training or hard race. And I'll tell you that that particular topic has sort of blown up a little bit recently in the sports nutrition world. Once a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, People used to think that 60 or 70 grams of carbs per hour, maybe 80 was about the maximum. Now there are riders up to 120 grams of carbs per hour. And the line of thought from the people I've studied or listened to thus far tends to lean towards the more carbs you can get in your mouth, the faster you will go. The rate limiting factor is how much the athlete's gut can handle that load of carbs. And when you get to that amount of carbs per hour, I mean, this is... This is like four bagels an hour is like a rough estimate, right? That's an insane amount of food. So imagine going hard during a race and eating four bagels. Can you do that? I don't think I can do that. So we have to be a little bit creative about how we get the carbs in anyway, without getting all nerded out on that stuff. This is the line of thought. And then after the race, assuming you have depleted your glycogen or hard workout, you need to pad with carbs. So the meal after your hard workout or race should contain some carbohydrates. That doesn't mean it's only carbs. It can also contain some fat and protein. And that's where the metabolic typing diet comes in really handy because you understand those ratios a little better. This is also where the paleo diet for athletes comes in pretty handy. If you want a good structured baseline for what to eat, that is a great resource in my opinion for people to go check out paleo diet for athletes. I read that book in college. It's a classic. It's right here on my bookshelf next to Nietzsche. So <clears throat> we'll put a note to that one in the old the old show notes, a linky poo. That's a technical jargon for an interweb link. I don't think interweb's a real name. I don't think it's a real word. I think it's just something people say. The other thing that Alan gave me, the sage piece of advice that Dr. Lim gave me was when I asked him, Alan, what do we eat? His response was really eloquent and simple. And this is why I love Al, because he's got this thing down. He said, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And that is actually brilliant advice. If you apply that to most meals, most of the time, you're going to be fine. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. What is he saying? He's saying you got to eat regularly. Don't starve yourself all the time. He's saying don't overdo it. Have moderate amounts of food, which I would interpret as listen to your body. When you eat slowly and chew your food slowly, then you give your satiation signals time to catch up with the amount of food in your stomach. When you cram food down your gaping maw like Homer Simpson, you tend to overeat. When you're eating unconsciously in front of the television, it's easy to overeat. When you destroy everything with barbecue sauce and sugar and salt, it's easy to overeat because who doesn't like sugar and salt? We are programmed to hunt that stuff down genetically. But now it's around way too much. 
You don't find Snickers bars in the forest, man. So there's some really simple advice for you on food. Eat food. Not too much. Not too much is also a nod to the concept of calories in, calories out. And some dietitians and athletes focus very, very exclusively on this concept. How many calories did you burn versus how many did you intake? How many kgs did you make on your ride plus your basal metabolic rate? Don't forget to take out the time from your basal metabolic rate that you were riding for the day because you're otherwise you're double counting, double dipping. And then add all that up and then add the number of calories you took in for the day. And the simple mathematical equation equals, did you lose weight or gain weight? And this is also a merry-go-round level way of looking at the playground. This is baby talk or elementary talk. There is some truth to calories in, calories out. But a calorie is not a calorie. And that is one of the sayings that people like to say who are on that side of the fence. A calorie is a calorie. And I'm just going to call it out. That's total bullshit. Your body perceives food as information, energy and information. And I know this is a bit esoteric, but just hear me out. Bodies don't just ingest calories. This is the entire problem with Soylent, which is one of the absolute biggest disasters I've ever encountered. It's also the problem with the Wonder Burger and all these meatless burgers. This is, without going down the debate of veganism and environmentalism and all these issues, there's a certain rhythm to all humans and a certain natural need to consume foods that are found in nature. And we do not find impossible burgers in a forest. This is intuitively obvious. And if you can't see this, you are, in my opinion, barking down the wrong path. You are trying to polish a rock into a diamond. You're justifying an end by manipulating the means. I don't know if that makes sense. But I'll say that <clears throat> calories in, calories out plays a role in diet and weight loss, but it is definitely not everything. I'll leave it at that. There are multiple factors that also play into whether or not an athlete's going to lose or gain weight. Some of it is hormonal balance. It's the timing of the meals. It is the content of the meals. It's the happiness of the athlete. Yes, it's the training load. It's also sleep. It's all these things. This is a spider web and every strand of that web pulls on everything else. This is how complex humans are. So when you are looking selectively at only one aspect of how calories or macronutrients play a role in diet, you're just not seeing the whole picture. It's a big topic and I realize that some people can get quite lost in what to eat and the timing of how to eat. And once things become derailed and you gain weight or lose weight, it can become quite challenging to get back on track. But Keep digging, look for the best experts you can, look for the best information you can, and you will find your way back to optimal health. That's always the goal. I mean, it has to be. What else is there? If you're getting paid hundreds of thousands of euros to ride your bike, then you can arguably put some, some of your short-term health to the side at certain points of your season, career because you've got a massive reward waiting. And by definition, a professional athlete has to be myopic and swing out of balance. That is the definition of what an elite athlete is, a world level athlete is. You swing out of balance on purpose to achieve a singular goal. That's what makes it so amazing when athletes do it. But then there's a price to pay and you must swing back into balance. And to swing back into balance requires energy to bring you back to center. Or you've got train wreck health for the rest of your life and consequences. And I've seen this happen many times. It's really unfortunate. But I want you to be not confused if you are an amateur or an enthusiast. 
don't assume that you air quotes should be doing what the pro athletes are in terms of their diet or other health oriented choices. They live in a world with different rules than you do because of what I've just explained. So they're not people to emulate when it comes to global health, to total health. The exception being the ones who manage to walk out of the sport and return to health or mind their health during sport. Want a good example of that? Check out Swain Tuft. The guy used to go for barefoot walks in the forest before Giro stages or Volta stages or both. There's a guy who doesn't live by the regular beat of the professional drummer. I'm not saying pros are bad. I'm just explaining the paradigm. I'm not here to judge. Just here to observe. Thinking, that's number four. When you have a lot of negative thoughts running around in your head, especially negative self-talk, like I suck or I don't belong here or I'm not good enough or I didn't train enough or my bike's not fast enough or I can't do this interval because I'm not strong enough or oh, my legs hurt. This mental chatter is garbage and you are not your thoughts. One of my teachers recently used an analogy to describe how the mind is basically like a wandering elephant. And when you let an elephant do what it wants to, it'll wander into rooms and maybe kind of through walls and it'll knock stuff over and its trunk will go rummaging through your living room and break lamps and scare the dog and knock over chairs, etc., and cause all kinds of problems. And this is what the mind is like. But you can learn to control your wandering elephant. And it is to your benefit to do so. This is part of the practice of developing discipline to direct your thoughts. When you see an undisciplined mind like a wandering elephant, it can cause all kinds of problems. It can wander into rooms filled with old memories that you don't really want to think about. It can maybe have bizarrely extrapolated fantasies about death or fire or murder or sex with people you shouldn't be thinking about having sex with or whatever. And these thoughts are potentially damaging to your psyche, potentially damaging to your conscious, not to mention kind of a waste of time. So when you train your mind and bring it back on course, when you pull that elephant back into its happy elephant den, whatever those are called, elephant stable, and you feed it elephant food, I don't even know what elephants eat. A terrible analogy. Well, it's a good analogy. I just don't know what elephants eat. Then you can keep things tidy. And there's nothing to be ashamed about in training your elephant. There's also quite a bit of learning and self-discovery in the acceptance that your thoughts are not you and that you can control them. The other analogy that's really powerful is when you have a negative thought, you can just let it go by like a cloud in the sky. You can observe it, witness it. By witnessing the thought, you can let it go. Or Paul would even say you could name it, blame it, and tame it. This is his handy way to help deal with negative emotions. So you have a thought and... Maybe you're at the start of a race and you're stressed out because you're running a little bit late and the line at registration was long and then the porta potties are gross and all the things we've experienced a million times at bike races. And you get back to your car and you're just kind of running around looking for your pump and your left glove and you're stressed out. And then you are slightly inattentive because of this stress and you slam your finger in the car door. And then you become angry. And I'm just making up a story to illustrate a point here. And then you kick the car or throw the pump or yell the F-bomb or whatever. So if you're going to use Paul's technique, you can name it. And when you learn to witness that emotion, that throwing of the pump, you can say, oh, this is my, my angry monster. My pre-bike race stress 
demon. And then you blame it. This demon is responsible for me slamming my finger in the door because it makes me inattentive, inattentive to my process, my pre-race process that I should be calm and focused for. And then you tame it by witnessing it and giving it responsibility. You're effectively, it's not a bypass. You're owning it because it's your monster, but you're taming it by calling it out and explaining to yourself that it's okay that this happened. And in the future, you're going to be more attentive for when this demon comes up, arises within you. And this simple name it, blame it, and tame it pattern because it rhymes and it's easy and now forever it's welded into your head it's a tool you can use and some of paul's stuff is quite dorky and it's intentionally dorky because dorky stuff is easy to remember and when someone is emotional and they're in their whatever you want to call it reptile brain primitive brain we need things that are easy to remember Complex tasks will escape us in that moment. We have to boil things down to what's going to break the cycle. So think about that tool and how it might apply in your own life. And these emotional moments, these outbursts, when your elephant gets out of control and rampages through a wall, is that a pattern? And if it's a pattern, I would encourage you to name it, blame it, and tame it. This is how we make ourselves better people. We've all got these patterns. Don't feel ashamed about it. So clean thinking, a clear mind, and I don't necessarily mean you have to be some Buddhist monk, but having a little bit of power in this category can really help your recovery. Because again, if you're thinking lots of negative thoughts all the time, it can be quite easy to carry that negativity for a few days. And then of course, you know, if you had a, an adult figure in your life as a young child, when you were a young child and they said to you over and over again, you're a terrible artist. You should never draw pictures. You're never going to be a good artist. And they repeated it over and over again. As a young child, eventually you would probably believe them. This is just human nature. It's not only because you're a kid. It's because all humans are suggestible. So when you have a voice in your head that's telling you that you suck or that you're not fast or that you're not strong enough or that you aren't explosive enough to fall the breakaway or you don't have the strength to climb this hill with the lead group and you tell yourself that over and over again, well, your focus determines your reality. And unfortunately, you can easily manifest that outcome. So I'm not trying to get into a giant self-help hole here, but I'll say it that way. Making a habit of protecting positive thoughts is definitely worth some time. Another point on thinking, I have a practice that I like to give some of my athletes and it's called legs up. And when you're really smoked and you need to just calm down, I'll have people put in headphones You got to use a left and a right. Go to your Magic Spotify account or wherever you get your tunes and plug in Theta. That's T-H-E-T-A. Or you can try 432 Hertz. You'll get some really etheric, slow-paced hippie music. I want you to lay on a, preferably a hard surface, like a hardwood floor. Not rock hard, but hard. Put your legs straight up the wall. And put your headphones in and close your eyes for 10 or 20 minutes and just breathe very slowly. Don't worry about box breathing. Don't worry about counting your breathing. And most of the time you come out of that and you feel like you took the best 20 minute nap of your life. This music will help calm your thoughts. The theta will help slow down the brain waves. The breath will help focus or cultivate relaxation. Putting your legs at the wall especially on the hard surface, can reset your pelvis. For those of you who have a bit of pelvic obliquity, which pretty much every bike racer on the planet does, I got a newsflash for you if you think you're special. 
also it'll drain your legs a little bit. So it's like a passive massage. Now, if you wanna really go Ben Greenfield on this and kill like 14 birds with one stone, take a little bit of liposomal GABA, put on your compression tights, and then put your Normantex over your compression tights. See if you can make it 20 minutes without your feet basically falling asleep. That is a powerful recovery modality right there. That is the super secret, triple whammy, Pat Warner, secret, not secret, Norman Tech technique. My favorite compression leggings while we're on the topic, Norman Tech over the compression with the legs up. This is a very intense experience. Another simple method to help organize your thoughts is with gentle motion. Paul would call these exercises working in not working out. So work, any definition of a, any work in exercise is that you must be able to do it with a full stomach. It's very gentle. You can do it with your mouth closed. And that means that it's not very intense. You can do gentle breathing squats, for example. Whenever you're doing a work in exercise, one key aspect is you always exhale as you approach the fetal position and inhale as you expand away from the fetal position. This is probably backwards from what you, your breathing pattern has been typically when doing squats in the gym. If you load the bar up for a back squat and put the bar on your back and you descend, a lot of times you'll, sometimes you'll breathe in and then you'll breathe out on the exhale on the way up. But during all breathing in exercises, you want to exhale as you approach the fetal position, so that would be as you descend in the squat, the eccentric load of the squat. There are lots of other breathing in exercises that Paul has recommended. I'm quite certain he's got several blogs on that out there, so I'll let you go forth and consult the search engines if you're interested. But another really powerful way to do this is simply do Tai Chi. Learn Tai Chi. Ah. Uh, It's a perfect gateway into meditation and it's a really good way for us as lifelong athletes to learn to slow down and coordinate breath with movement instead of just going all the time, going, going, going as fast as we can. Drinking. This one's pretty simple. If you're not hydrating regularly throughout the day with really clean water, first choice is always local spring water that's tested for all kinds of impurities and negative crappiness we don't want in our fluids. If you're doing that on a regular basis, then you're going to be in good shape. If you're the type of person who only drinks soda, tea, coffee, and whatever else, lattes, then you're probably running around with chronically dehydrated fascia and tissue, muscular tissue, connective tissue. And this eventually leads to limitations in range of motion and really tight spots in your body. This is highly problematic for an athlete or anyone who wants to be a functional human being. And there are people who walk their whole lives on the earth being pretty much, I would argue, chronically dehydrated. Remember, your fascia is basically like a system of really, really tiny straws. And when that fascia is hydrated, it works well and it's open and fluid and responds to movement well. Whether that movement is Eldoa or stretching or hard intervals. I mean, that's what the expression move fluidly means. You've got to have hydration in your tissues if you're going to move fluidly. And do you want a fluid supple pedal stroke? Well, if you're listening to me this far into this podcast, I would argue you probably do. Water is life and humans are between 55 and about 70% water. Think about that for a moment. You're basically a hairy bag of water and you came from the ocean So when you're running around dehydrating yourself, especially if you're riding your bike a lot at altitude all day long, I mean, pretty much every exhale at altitude in a low humidity environment, you're expelling 
moisture in the air on every exhale. It's like leaving the refrigerator open and trying to cool your whole house. That's what you're doing with the environment. You're constantly bleeding air, hydration, water, vapor out of your lungs constantly. So the first thing I do every morning is drink a fair amount of water. I start off with 12 or 16 ounces with some minerals in it. Sometimes I'll use a squeezed lemon to help give the liver a little, a little kickstart. And then I'm hydrating throughout the day. And the better I am with that, the more acutely aware I become of my hydration patterns. A lot of people just get frustrated when I tell them about this because they feel like they just break the habit. They don't have a good habit of hydration. And it's pretty simple. Just have an armada of glass bottles around. Carry one with you. Put, Give it a little home in your backpack or your commuter bag or whatever you've got. And it's your thing. You take it to work, you refill, you go here, you go there, you have access to good water. And it's just something you have to pay attention to. But keeping a vessel, or really you need a series of vessels for this water. And my first choice is always glass. Yeah, there's PVC free, this and that and whatever. But energy is highly sensitive to, sorry, water is highly sensitive to energy. Also, keep it away from your computer and your phone. It picks up stuff. If you want to learn more about that, Paul's got a lot of great blogs on water and how significant it is. But this is a key aspect of your recovery. If you're getting massage and you're doing all this myofascial release and your system's not hydrated, you should be ice skating uphill. And when you start to know what you look like when you are hydrated, you can see it in people's face. And you see people who are chronic endurance athletes. Training, 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 addicted to aerobic load, chronic cardio, and they're always dehydrated. You start to be able to pick them out pretty quickly. I'll give you one little tool you can use. This is a pretty simple one. Just pinch the skin on the back of your hand between your wrist and your knuckles, pull it up and let it go. When you're really dehydrated, it will take a while for that skin to return to the way it looked before you pinched it. If you're quite hydrated, it takes about one second for your skin to look normal. When you're dehydrated, it'll kind of stay there. Kind of pitches this little tent, this little pinch tent. That's your quick and dirty self-hydration check. Last one is movement. And I touched a bit on this when I got into the thinking area. Paul would say that working in is one of the best ways to facilitate movement during recovery. But I want to pick apart the nuance here a little bit. How do you know when you should take a complete day off versus when you should go for an easy ride? This might depend a little bit on the type of fatigue you have. Example, if you do a hard ride with a lot of climbing and a lot of intensity, we'll say high zone three or race pace, you know, zone four efforts fast as you can. Maybe you do an hour worth of work and a three or four hour ride or something. And assuming that ride is within your wheelhouse of training, the TSS wasn't off the charts relative to what you've been doing, then you might recover okay from that ride. You might be tired and your muscles might have some soreness, but you're not obliterated. And if this is the case, an easy ride can help flush your legs build some gentle circulation and help loosen up the muscles. Sometimes the next day you get up and the muscles are very, they're just tight. They're kind of welded together. So we're going to let those muscles be supple. So assuming you did all the things on the list above this, you slept well, you had good breathing patterns after your ride, you ate well and replenished yourself with carbohydrates after the ride. You didn't have a bunch of negative thoughts. You didn't have a lot of bad dreams. You didn't, carry a lot of negative stress with you throughout the afternoon after the week workout the day before you're hydrated you've been consuming fluids so your system is is fluid filled remember also in order to store carbohydrates you need water that's how muscles refuel glycogen storage and the liver storage glycogen you consume carbohydrates but that carbohydrate is consumed and stored with water so if you don't hydrate, you cannot, you literally physically cannot 
store the molecules of glycogen in your muscles and liver. So assuming you've been doing all those things, then an easy ride might benefit you, but sometimes you go so deep or your nervous system is fried. Now there are two different types of fatigue we can highlight here. One is more muscular glycogen depletion muscle soreness. This is where muscle fibers are tired. This is when your quads and hopefully your hamstrings and glutes and calves, if your bike is set up right, all are sore. Maybe even your triceps and some of your intercostals get sore when you do a really long ride or a big ride. And if that's the case, that's probably more muscular soreness and glycogen depletion, also muscle damage. And so in these cases, an easy ride can sometimes help because they loosen the muscle fibers and facilitate circulation. And so too much stagnation can kind of almost prevent the recovery process. You might do just as well to go for an easy walk and practice some box breathing. On this recovery ride, I would suggest nasal breathing. That's ideal. That governs intensity and also forces you to work on breath technique a little bit. This is one of my favorite recovery techniques. Exclusively breathing through the nose. But if your nervous system is completely fried, which is probably experienced by most athletes as more of a general sense of fatigue, that is a little bit of almost trouble concentrating, uh, a little bit of attention challenge, and perhaps inability to do things like simple tasks, like you might be dropping forks when you're in the kitchen, maybe catching your toe on the stairs when you're going upstairs, these types of things. This is can be indicative of nervous system fatigue. If you want a couple really good tests for that, you can search for the keyboard tap test, which is a quick way to check your nervous system. If you're using a whoop, that is a device that ties directly into nervous system fatigue by registering HRV or an aura ring. And I think there are a few other HRV devices out there. There's also HRV for training, an app that you'll use. There's lots of other tools you can try there. But another one is one of Paul Check's tests is go find your stability ball and kneel on your stability ball. Set a timer for one minute and keep track of how many times you fall off that ball. When your nervous system is fresh, you can sit there welded to that thing for a minute straight, no problem. And by kneel on it, what I mean is put your knees on the ball, feet hanging off the back, pelvis is straight above the knees, shoulders are straight above the pelvis and just balance. If you're falling off that ball two, three, four times, that's probably middle ground. If it's more than three or four, there's a good chance your nervous system is really cooked and you definitely want no business training hard that day. Training hard or strength and conditioning, challenging strength and conditioning are just going to be not fruitful. You need another night of sleep, another day of relaxation and another night of sleep before you're going to try and train hard again. So there's a tip on checking in with your recovery. There are lots of methods you can use to, to check that out. Classic heart rate isn't the best because it doesn't really give you an insight into nervous system response. Unless you take the delta between laying and standing, that can maybe give you an insight, but HRV is a far more advanced method. Although that said, there are some coaches and people out there who don't believe that the HRV measuring method is all that good. In my experience, you've got to try it out for yourself. I've seen athletes who have had good results with it. I've seen other athletes where it just didn't seem to work. So these are my thoughts on recovery. You're probably expecting all kinds of scientific analyses on cryo chambers and stuff. One last note I'll make, you can go nuts with a lot of things like that, including ice baths. That's a great example. You can go to a cryo, a cryo tube or an ice bath. Should you do these things? Well, just like anything, I think there's a fine line between adding more stress and facilitating recovery. So if you're going into an ice bath and you're literally freaking out and breathing like, I don't know, a stressed out muskrat, I want to say, 
getting into that ice bath is probably causing you more stress than it is alleviating. It's probably upregulating sympathetic tone. And is that the goal? Well, maybe it is temporarily assuming you have a parasympathetic response. But if it just sends you into a big flight or flight cascade and your hormones get jacked to the moon, then that probably wasn't constructive. I do think there are athletes who in 2020 or 2021 will run around filling their day with recovery modalities, massage, cryotubes, acupuncture, craniosacral, chiro, uh, pulsed electromagnetic field therapy, whatever else you can think of. And if you think about that, if every one of those requires a trip in the car and traffic and sitting and getting in and out of the car and negotiating the appointment and paying for the appointment, that's a lot of yang. That's a lot of doing. So how much doing are we offsetting with our super expensive recovery modality? And I'm not saying don't do these things. They have their place, but the end barometer, the final yardstick of measuring whether a device or an activity such as that will really benefit you probably comes down to the total yang versus yin load that is associated with doing that activity. And you have to take that into context. So if you literally have the whole day to do nothing but lay on the couch and read a book, and then in the afternoon, you're going to go do a cryotube session. Sure. Sounds like it would work. But if you're sprinting to hit that cryotube session between four other appointments and dropping your bike off at the mechanic, maybe not the best use of your time. You might just go do legs up somewhere in the shade. I have much gratitude for my audience and I'm really happy you made it to this point. If you have feedback, questions, or comments, as always, please head to the Fast Talk Labs forum. We will make a page specifically for this podcast, and you can go forth there and reach out. This is so that multiple people can benefit from your question and my answer. Comments are fine there too. Be sure and at me in the forum, which makes ensures that I get the proper notification that you spoke out. With that, I will say good night, and I hope everyone gets a good night of sleep this evening. Thanks for listening. Attention, Space Monkeys, public service announcement. Really, technically, it's a disclaimer. You already know this, but I'm going to remind you that I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a doctor, so don't take anything on this podcast to constitute lawyerly or doctorly advice. I don't play either of those characters on the internet. Also, we talk about lots of things, and that means we have opinions. My guests' opinions are not necessarily reflective of the opinions of anyone who is employed by or works at Fast Talk Labs. Also, if you want to reach out and talk to me about things, feedback on the podcast, good, bad, or otherwise, you may do so at the following email address, info at cyclinginalignment.com. That's all spelled just like it sounds, which again is self-evident.